0: One of my favorite things that I get to do as a pastor is officiate weddings. Love being able to officiate weddings. I've done uh, dozens and dozens over the last 20 years. Some of y'all that are sitting in here, I had the privilege of officiating your wedding. The only thing that I think I maybe enjoy more than officiating weddings is uh, every few years, someone comes and asks if I would officiate their vow renewal. Uh, Vow renewal is uh, often done uh, for couples that have walked through something really tough together. Uh, Some difficulty um, that was in the marriage that they had to overcome, work through, learn to forgive and embrace one another again. And so it's a really beautiful opportunity to remind each other the promises that they made on their wedding day. And so We'll get together and have a short little small ceremony usually. And and then they will speak their vows that they spoke to one another before. Uh, When you first get married, quite honestly, it's fairly easy to kind of say those vows. Because you don't really yet know what they're going to cost you. Right? It was easy for me Uh, on my wedding day to say whatever the pastor told me to repeat. I was like, what, what, like what's it going to take for me to get married to her? Like, that's what I cared about. Like, You say it, I'll say it back, let's just get on to the rest of the day. You know what I'm saying? So, a vow renewal, though, you know the, the cost. You've experienced it. It's easy to say that we're going to love in sickness and in health, for better, for worse, till death do us part. Until he starts to gain some weight and lose some hair or she starts to gain some hair and lose some teeth. I don't know what it is for y'all, okay? <laughs> but often it's, uh, it's way more difficult than that, though, those of us that have been married for a little while. When he falls into clinical depression or she has an emotional affair, or he struggles with pornography, or she's in an accident, and things may never be the same. All of a sudden, that's when you realize that those vows, those promises you made, have consequences. They will cost you something. Five, 10, 30 years into a marriage relationship, we begin to understand the cost, but The reason that folks often do vow renewals is not simply because they understand the cost, but because they also have understood the power, beauty, and blessing that comes when we honor our vows in spite of the difficulty. If you have your Bibles this morning, I'd love you to open up to Joshua chapter 24. We're at the end of our series through the book of Joshua, and I've absolutely loved our time together. It has been uh, difficult walking through this book together. Um, it's caused me to understand God more deeply. It's challenged me to really look at my own life, where I stand before Him. And I think that's exactly what God intends and desires for us to do today. Uh, last week, Joshua chapter 23. Joshua called together all of the leaders of Israel and told them not to drift. He says they need to hang on to God's word, not turn to the left or the right, rather hold fast to God himself. And we kind of talk through like what these last couple of years has been for many of us. We've kind of felt that drift, right? Uh, If you're in the lake or the ocean, the only thing you need to do to drift is... Nothing. Yeah. And for many of us, these last couple of years have gotten us into a pattern at times of just kind of doing nothing. And we felt it in our spiritual lives. Our spiritual lives have kind of drifted. And all of a sudden, we wake up one day and we look and we're like, well, how did I wind up here? Well, in Joshua 24, Joshua doesn't just call together the leaders of Israel. Joshua winds up calling the entire nation of Israel to gather he brings him to a particular place called Shechem. Shechem is a really important city in the Old Testament. Abraham got a promise from God in Shechem. Shechem is part of the promised land, and God told Abraham in that space that he was going to experience uh, or be given the land there. So you have all the way back to Abraham, and then Abraham's grandson, Jacob, experiences God at Shechem, in fact, he spends some uh, time with God wrestling one night when he's not expecting to. And Jacob is a trickster, deceiver. He always takes matters into his own hands, figures out like, what he's supposed to do. He's got a plan A and a plan B, C, and Z. Like, he's always the one who's got like, an angle that he's working. Okay. And he winds up wrestling with God, a messenger, an angel, who pops Jacob's hip out of joint. Jacob is left laying on the ground, holding on to this messenger, this angel's leg. And the messenger of God looks at Jacob and says, let me go for the day is breaking. Genesis 32, 26. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go until you bless me. And what Jacob is doing in that moment is he's holding on to God's leg. And he finally, for the first time in his life, realizes who he is and who he's been wrestling with, not just that night, but his entire life. And he says, if I let you go, God, I'm done. I'm toast. I got nothing. I need you. I will not let you go until you bless me. And God changes Jacob's name in that moment to Israel. Jacob's 12 sons become the 12 tribes of Israel. So Jacob has a moment there in Shechem. And then you have now Joshua. Now that they are in the promised land, God has given it to them. He brings all of Israel to Shechem to have another encounter with God. Let's pick up the story, verse 1, chapter 24. It says, Then Joshua assembled all the tribes of Israel at Shechem. He summoned the elders, leaders, judges, and officials of Israel, and they presented themselves before God. So they're not presenting themselves before Joshua, they're presenting themselves before Yahweh. Joshua said to all the people, this is what Yahweh, the God of Israel, says. And then he begins to speak as one speaking for God. Joshua is speaking as a prophet. And he simply starts off by saying, long ago, your ancestors, including Terah, the father of Abraham and Nahor, lived beyond the Euphrates River and worshipped other gods. Now what he's going to do is continue on to explain how Yahweh had called Abraham out of that polytheistic culture and began to reveal himself to Abraham as being the one true God who was above heaven and earth. I'm trying not to cough right now. <coughs> Excuse me. And then he's going to move on from Abraham to talk about all the different ways that God had just done these beautiful, amazing things for Israel and revealed himself not just as the one true God, but but the only true God. And takes them then from Abraham to Isaac, and then Isaac to Jacob, who gets renamed Israel, and then one of... Jacob, Israel's sons, Joseph, who winds up getting them into Egypt to save them. But after 400 years of slavery, God sends Moses, and Moses comes and rescues them out of slavery, and they wander through the desert for 40 years because of their disbelief, but God continues to provide for them. And eventually we get to Joshua and God brings them into the promised land and fights for Israel and gives them the land that he had promised some 500 years earlier. And they're finally there. And we pick up now in verse 14, where Joshua is no longer speaking for God, but begins speaking in his own voice. And he says this to the Israelites, all of the nation that's gathered there at Shechem, now fear Yahweh and serve him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods your ancestors worshipped beyond the Euphrates River and in, and, and in Egypt and serve Yahweh. Remember, anytime you see the word the Lord, and Lord is in all caps, even though it's kind of like L capital lowercase already, that means Yahweh. That's God's proper name. But if serving Yahweh seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your ancestors served beyond the Euphrates or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. And then we get this famous verse that many of you have probably heard before. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. Joshua lays out all that God has done. And then he says to the Israelites, you need to fear God and get rid of the foreign gods among you. He says, you got to choose. Who are you going to serve? Are you going to serve the gods of your ancestors? Are you going to serve the gods of the Amorites, the culture that you're living in? Or are you going to serve Yahweh? And he says, for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. We're going to serve Yahweh. And now the people have a response. All right. They need to then determine what they're going to do. He's calling them all out, the entire nation, at one time. We see in verse 16, it says, Then the people answered, Far be it from us to forsake Yahweh to serve other gods. In other words, like, yo, 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 no, uh we know. <laughs> We've seen everything that God has done. We're not going to serve other gods. We will serve Yahweh, just like you, Joshua. Drop down with me to verse 18, be it. They finally, after saying a few more things, say, we too will serve Yahweh because he is our God. So they're basically saying, yo, we're not going to serve the gods. We are going to serve Yahweh. So that's the first time that they declare this. Then drop down to verse 21. Joshua talks him a little bit more. He's like, yo, you sure? You guys can't, you're not doing a very good job of it. You sure you're going to do this? A second time they say, but the people said to Joshua, no, we will serve Yahweh Verse 22, then Joshua said, you are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen to serve the Lord, Yahweh. Yes, we are witnesses, they replied to Joshua. So that's the second time that they've said it. Drop down to verse 24. Joshua's just told them, you need to get away, throw away all the foreign gods that are among you and give your hearts to God. Verse 24, and the people said to Joshua, we will serve the Lord our God, Yahweh our God, and obey him. So, Now, three times they have repeated this, okay? Three times they have said, we will do this. So Joshua then says in verse 25, on that day, Joshua made a covenant for the people and there at Shechem, he reaffirmed for them the decrees and laws. This is a covenant renewal. They are renewing their vows. They have already once said, yes, we will follow God. Joshua is calling them back and saying, hey, y'all sure about this? Joshua is the last thing he's gonna do. He knows he's about to die. Who are you going to really serve, Israel? And three times they repeat, yes, we will serve Yahweh. Verse 26. And Joshua recorded these things in the book of the law of God. Then he took a large stone and set it up there under the oak near the holy place of Yahweh. See, he said to all the people, this stone will be a witness against us. It has heard all the words the Lord has said to us. It will be a witness against you if you are untrue to your God. Then Joshua dismissed the people, each to their own inheritance. (sighs) Can I let you in on a dirty little secret, though? I've been, like, uh, teaching God's word as a pastor for, like, 25 years now. It really wasn't until this week, believe it or not, that I kind of realized that Israel, starting back with Abraham... Was polytheistic. They worshiped more than one God. Now, some of you are like, whoa, 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 what are you talking about, man? Like, that's one of the defining key facts about Israel is that they are a monotheistic religion. It's actually the thing that differentiated them from all the other cultures. Almost every single other ancient Near East culture was a polytheistic culture. They worshiped multiple gods. But we actually learn. At the beginning of chapter 24, that Terah, who was the father of Abraham, who was the father of Israel, initially had worshiped other gods, ancestral gods. They kind of worshiped their ancestors, they had idols. In fact, when God first comes to Abraham and calls him out, Abraham, by faith, obeys God, but he doesn't fully know who Yahweh is yet. Over the course of their relationship and God's investment in Abraham, because of his faith, he comes to realize that God is God alone, the God of heaven and earth. There is no other God. But within one generation, from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob, we already know that Jacob is not only worshiping Yahweh, he also has other ancestral gods that he is worshiping. In fact, it's at Shechem, after that night when he wrestles with God and God changes his name, that the next, uh, within the next couple of days, he actually goes to Shechem, where this story is taking place in Joshua, and it says that he removes the ancestral gods from his family and buries them under an oak tree in Shechem to, to get rid of them. Abraham had come from that. It was the ancient Near East was just that every culture was polytheistic. Two generations after Abraham, his grandson is still struggling with worshiping these other gods. Now uh, we find that they wind up in Egypt and are slaves there for 400 years. And while they're there in Egypt, they also begin to worship the gods of their ancestors again. The text in chapter 24 tells us about that. And so when they come out of Egypt, Moses has to tell them, you got to leave your gods behind. We have to serve Yahweh and him alone. And they say yes. And now here we are at the end of this time, the end of Joshua's life. They're in the promised land. They've seen all the amazing things that God has done for them. And Joshua is still having to tell them, get rid of your foreign gods. Who are you going to serve? The gods of your ancestors across the Euphrates, where Abraham came from? The gods of the Amorites, the culture that you find yourself living in right now, in the new land? Or are you going to serve Yahweh? Israel struggled with polytheism their entire existence. In fact, uh, God, Yahweh, who is holy, jealous, there's nothing else like him In the world, he is different, wholly different. And I don't mean H-O-L-Y different. I mean W-H-O-L-L-Y different. He's unlike anything else. When he gives the Ten Commandments to Moses, what's the first commandment? You shall have no other gods before me. Israel struggled with polytheism their entire existence. And the truth is, so do you and I. Um, now, today our gods aren't really like little figurines that are made of gold and silver and such. They're made of really high-end glass and microchips and things that we carry them in our pockets. Uh, but we have a number of different gods that I think we find in the culture that we live in. They just look a little different, but they are absolutely worshipped nonetheless. There's an Old Testament scholar, his name's uh, Robert, Dr. Robert Hubbard. He talked about three uh, gods that I thought were powerful to share uh, with us this morning. The first one is the God of materialism. Does this one sound familiar to anybody here in America? The God of materialism. This God teaches that all human needs can be met by material means. That all of our needs can be met by material means. It says that happiness and satisfaction come through financial success, possession of material goods and pleasure. It promotes leisure activities, travel, Hobbies, recreation, sports, and the like as spiritual retreats in its honor. Uh, My generation, Gen Xers, and the boomer generation that was before me, uh, we very much worshipped the God of materialism. And we saw it as stuff get stuff, collect stuff, get nice stuff, get good stuff. Uh, Gen Z, Maybe some of y'all millennials, you don't care about stuff the way that we often do. What you care about is experiences. And it's the same God. It's just packaged a little different. In fact, uh, Ewan McGregor does a commercial for Expedia. It uh, debuted during the Super Bowl uh, this past February. And uh, in, in the commercial, he's, he's walking through uh, these set designs or these sets that are all these old Super Bowl commercials. It's actually kind of funny. I didn't even realize it the first time that I watched it. And he's kind of making fun of them, and there's all these different things, like a puppy and a Clydesdale horse, things, you know, like you need this stuff and uh, all, all, all these different things. And then he says this at the end. He says, Do you think any of us will look back on our lives and regret the things we didn't buy? And then he opens up a door and walks out onto a beach, and he says, or the places we didn't go. Ah, oh, Gen Z, y'all are eating it up. You're like, yeah, it's not about that stuff. It's about the experience. I need the experience. right? Look, I don't care whether you're a boomer, Gen X, Gen Z, millennial. It's the same God. It's the God of materialism that says those pieces, those things that come through satisfaction of financial success and happiness with material goods and pleasures, those hobbies, those recreations, that's what's going to fulfill me. And way too often we wind up giving our lives for that God. A close ally of the God of materialism is the God of convenience. We Americans, man, we place a high value on convenience, don't we? The defining attributes of the God of convenience are omnipresence and omni-availability. That's what we want. Now, there's nothing inherently spiritual about inconvenience, okay? Let's just be clear about that. There's nothing that's inherently spiritual about inconvenience, but this Amazon God becomes prime in our life as it feeds the God of materialism. I'm glad y'all got that. Like, I worked hard on that line, okay? (laughs) Like, all week I was like, first service, they didn't get it. I was, come on. Look, the truth is, uh, waiting on the Lord is foolish to those who've never waited. So is waiting for marriage, or waiting for healing, or waiting for anything. Uh, It's really hard to hunger and thirst after righteousness if you've never been hungry or thirsty. Way too often we worship not just the God of materialism, but the God of convenience as well. Uh, The third God of our culture that Hubbard talks about comes to us from Greek mythology. Uh, You guys remember Narcissus? The beautiful man who drowned himself looking at his own reflection in a pond. Reminds me of myself. Oh, you guys are way nice. Some of you laughed a little too quick, okay? (laughs) That hurt just a little. I'm just saying. No, there's uh, this God is actually the God of me. The God of materialism, the God of convenience, and the God of me. Uh, This delusion, or excuse me, the delusion of this God, of me, is that our sense of importance depends on external things. Not on who we really are inside. It cares more about what others think of us than what God does. God requires the renunciation of our ego. God's interested in transforming us from the inside. But the God of me says, what do I look like on the outside? How does everybody else view me? How will others accept me? How will others see me? And so we have our beautiful Facebook and Instagram lives. And the God of me continues to feed that. Just be good on the outside. Keep the mask up. Do whatever it takes. When God is not interested in the outside like he is interested on the inside. God cares about the heart. God is renovating the heart. That's what God wants to get after. The God of me isn't really interested in what's inside. The God of materialism preaches, you need this. The God of convenience says, you can have this. And the God of me whispers, you deserve this. So, friends, are you a polytheist? <laughs> I am. Way more often than I want to acknowledge or admit, I find myself worshiping more than Jesus. Uh, When I was five years old, as best as a five-year-old could understand, I gave my heart to Jesus. I prayed and said, Jesus, I want you. Now, I will admit I had a five-year-old understanding of who God was. A few years later, I was in sixth grade. I can still uh, remember. Uh, this is Walker Elementary School, Flint, Michigan. Uh, there's a row of desks. I'm sitting in one. I've got a friend behind me, a friend in front of me, and there's three of my friends that are sitting on this bank of cabinets that have a uh, um, just a countertop on it, and we're just having a conversation. Actually, there's a couple different conversations that are taking place, and uh, I swore. I didn't swear often. In fact, I don't remember really swearing much at all before that moment, and uh, my friends were shocked. In fact, the different conversations that started all kind of stopped, and everybody looked at me, and my friend Lawrence said, "Yo, Tori, I didn't know you swear. Everybody called me Tory back then." And so in that moment, um, I chose the God of acceptance by peers, the God of me rather than Jesus. I cared way more about fitting in. And so I rattled off about four or five swear words in one sentence. Well, Mother swear, And it was like my moment right there where I was choosing to worship the God of acceptance rather than Jesus. And uh, it's funny because I can still literally remember that moment. I remember everything about that moment because it was probably one of the first times I made a conscious decision of what I was actually going to worship. Fast forward a few years later, God in his grace sent a couple people into my life that began to care about me and they lived out their faith in a way that was like real and authentic and I didn't know anybody like that. And God started to use that to ask me the question, Torn, you call yourself a Christian. Do you think it matters how you live? And all of a sudden, I started saying, man, why? I tell all my friends I'm a Christian, but I don't act like it. How I treat people, how I think, how I talk, what I'm about, nothing would indicate that I was a follower of Jesus. And Jesus' spirit and his grace and kindness began to just do a work in my life, and I started to fall in love with Jesus. And I said, man, Jesus, I'll do whatever. I want you. And when I made that decision to renew the covenant that I had made with Jesus when I was five years old, God began to use that in my life to literally set my life on a different trajectory. Not even kidding. That was a life-altering moment because God in his grace allowed me to renew that covenant. Uh, One of the people that helped me find Jesus was this girl that I liked, and we were dating. In senior year of high school, in the beginning of college, uh, I began to make her a God in my life. She became an idol that I began to place above Jesus. And I began to worship what she thought more than what Jesus thought. And so God very graciously removed her from my life because she dumped me. (laughs) But over the course of that really honestly painful experience for me, I, I was able to renew that covenant with God saying, Jesus, I want you. I don't want anybody else. I don't I want to have what you want for me, not what I can find or create or get for myself. And in his grace, not only did he renew that covenant with me again, but he's like, that's really good T, because like I got this cute little Filipina hottie that's going to come to Cedarville in the middle of the cornfields and you're going to meet her and she's going to become your wife and it's going to be the greatest thing. That you... And I was like, yeah. <laughs> and then about 20 years ago, as a pastor, I began to worship the God of celebrity along with Jesus. And I was really interested in being a part of the in crowd with the cool Christians. And I was trying everything I could to network and get to know these cats. And I was starting to actually get to know them and spend time with them and felt like this was going to pull me in, give me that place and space that I was really hoping for. I was worshiping something other than Jesus. And the truth was, is it was uh, it was probably going to shipwreck my ministry and based on a number of those guys that I was pursuing and looking up to it very well may have actually shipwrecked my faith because that actually happened to a number of them and if it wasn't for God's grace and bringing another friend into my life and kind of calling me out and say that's not Jesus you're not following after Jesus anymore you're you're going after something else he really kind of rescued me and God in his grace allowed me to renew my covenant and said, Jesus, I don't want that, I want you. And then about eight years ago, I began to dabble with the God of position and prestige. Uh, I had an opportunity to get a position that I thought was gonna fulfill me. Big stage, big church, nationally known, I knew I was going to get this position. There was only two of us that were interviewing for it. The headhunter told me I was far and away the top contender for it. I went to this city expecting that it was just a formality. I'm looking at houses online. While we were there, took my family to even see a house in person. And then that church dumped me. Kind of a common theme <laughs> in my life. He graciously removed the position from my life, and honestly, I couldn't be more grateful. Looking back now, eight years later, I see what God was up to. He was trying to remind me that there is no position, there is no platform, there is no prestige that's going to give you the very things that you're looking for. I'm the only place that's going to do that. I'm the one who opens up doors for you, not an organization, not a platform. I'm the one who can fill that hole in your heart that you think some big stage is going to give you. It will never give that to you. And God, in his grace, then a couple of years later, led me to TLC. Just like he led me to my wife when I was willing to give myself wholly to him, he led me to this place. And friends, I'm telling you, there is No other church I would rather get to be a pastor of than this place. I am super grateful for what I get to do. But I will tell you, as I have just shown over the course of my life, I have found myself worshiping other gods, Jesus plus other things, right? The gods of my culture, the culture that I find myself a part of, just like the Israelites, just like I would guess you. And that's why Joshua had to come to them that day and say, who are you going to choose? They still had gods among them, actual idols that they were worshiping along with Yahweh. And he's like, you got to get rid of that. Who are you going to choose? Is it going to be Yahweh or is it going to be the gods of your ancestors or the gods of your culture? Choose you this day who you will serve. And for some of you that are sitting here this morning, that's a question that the spirit is asking. Literally asking you right now, who are you going to serve? You see, God knew that Israel was not going to do very well with that. They're like three times, we're going to serve you. And then like almost as soon as this book is over, the next book starts and they're back to screwing up. God knew we couldn't do it on our own. That's why he actually sent Jesus. And Jesus lived a life that you and I can't live. He lived it perfectly. And Jesus paid the penalty that you and I couldn't pay. He died on the cross for us. And then Jesus ultimately rose back to life so that we could have life in Jesus, be a part of the family of God through faith. Uh, John, or excuse me, Romans chapter 10, verse nine says, if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, right, king, boss, leader, gets to tell me anything, gets to tell me everything, that's what Lord means. And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. There's somebody here this morning that that's just what you need. That right there. You've never actually invited Jesus in your life. Maybe you've played with the whole religion thing. You maybe even grew up going to church, but you've never made a decision that for me and my household, I'm choosing Jesus. And this morning, that's what you need to do. I'm not going to have everybody pray about If you need to do some business with God, you just do it right now. The rest of us, many of us are probably already following Jesus. That's awesome, super great. Jesus did something uh, with his 12 closest friends, his disciples, who also were already following him. And on his very last night, before he's going to be crucified, he gets the 12 together and they're celebrating the Passover in what we call the upper room. It's just a room upstairs. They're celebrating the Passover together. Jesus knows that he's uh, about to be betrayed by Judas. He's going to be crucified. He knows all this is happening. And so he wants to spend that last night giving them some final teaching. This is when we get communion, the Lord's Supper, when he says, uh, breaks the bread and says, this is my body, which will be broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And and then he takes the cup and he pours it out and he says, take this cup, this wine. It symbolizes my blood, which is going to be poured out for you. It's a new covenant. But he also does something else that only one of the gospel writers tell us about. Only John tells us about this event where Jesus begins to wash the disciples' feet. Now, I've heard this story hundreds of times. You probably have as well if you grew up going to church. Jesus washes the disciples' feet and One of the main takeaways from that is that we're supposed to be leaders like Jesus, right? He was willing to humble himself and get down on his knees and wash their dirty feet. And that's true. It does have something to do with humble servant leadership. But a lot of times we stop there. But I don't think that's actually all that Jesus was intending to do. I don't think that's actually probably the main thing that Jesus is trying to teach us through this. In Joshua, or excuse me, in um, John chapter 13... John tells us about one particular interaction during this time that that is really telling. Starts in verse 5. He came to Simon Peter. This is Jesus. He's been washing some of the disciples' feet. And now he comes to Simon Peter to wash his feet. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Verse 7. Jesus replied, you don't realize now what I'm doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. I'm not gonna let you do that, man. I know who you are, I know who I am. You're not getting to wash my feet, no way. Look what Jesus says to him. Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then Lord, Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Do the whole thing, baby. Like, I don't want just a little bit, like, give me the whole, I want all, all of it. But Jesus answered, those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is already clean, and you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who, Judas, was going to betray him, and that was why he said not everyone was clean. Interesting interaction here that Jesus has with Peter. What's going on? Why did he do this? Why did he have this interaction with Peter? Um, N.T. Wright, New Testament scholar, gives us an insight. He says, the little drama with Peter, misunderstanding yet again what Jesus is up to, is funny on the outside, but deeply serious on the inside. Jesus must wash us if we are to belong to him. Yet he has already washed us, those who have accepted him by faith as king and savior. What we need day by day is the regular washing of those parts of ourselves, our personalities and body, which get dusty and dirty. Friends, the gods of this world... Get our feet dirty. The gods of this world get our feet dirty. We're trying to follow Jesus, and way too often, we're also worshiping other things, and our feet are getting dirty. Yes, you've given your life to Jesus, but there are times like Joshua 24 and what Jesus does here in John 13 where we need to renew our covenant, renew our vows to say, Jesus, I'm dirty. I need to be clean again. I want you. I'm going to choose you. And so today I'm going to ask us to do something that is Really strange. I've been debating it all week long. Was not sure what I was going to do. Some of y'all have seen these pools sitting up here, and you're like, why we got some kiddie pools up here? Some of you are guests because you're here to support your grandchild or your niece or nephew. And you're like, yo, this church is weird. Yes, we're about to get weird. So here's what I'm going to say to you, worship team, as you guys prepare. As an act, Of covenant renewal in the form of Jesus washing the disciples feet. I'm going to ask you today to declare to Jesus that you are choosing him by taking off your shoes and your socks and during our worship time to walk forward and just simply walk through one of the pools. Now, some of y'all are sitting here right now and you are ticked off at me. I get it. I understand I'm American too. Don't be telling me what to do, manipulating me at church, making me have to walk up. Look, let me say this. This is challenged by choice. You don't get any prowny points with Jesus if you come and do it. Jesus does not love you less if you don't. I'm not making anybody do this, but I will tell you, there are times in our lives where God asks us to stand up and stand out a little and do something a little uncomfortable as a way to publicly and also physically mark a moment. And so you don't have to. I promise you, you won't get judged. Ain't nobody gonna be looking around and see who got shoes on and who don't have shoes on. But TLC, especially for those of you that call this place home, Those of you that are owners here at TLC, this is a moment that not just individually, but as a community, we are saying, Jesus, we are yours. And no matter what other gods we have been serving alongside of you, today, we walk through these waters to remove the dust as you did for the disciples to declare you are ours. And I've asked our worship team if they would, Start symbolically as they lead us by moving through those waters. Father Jesus, Father Jesus, Father God. <laughs> Thanks that we get to laugh in church, God. Uh, Jesus, Holy Spirit, we simply say we want you today. God, I acknowledge that there's way too many times where I find myself drifting. Drifting. And I find myself inadvertently, and sometimes very vertently, (laughs) worshiping the gods of my culture. But Jesus, today I want you. And so, as a public act, symbolically, I too remove my shoes, my socks, to walk through these waters, to say, I wash those gods away. I remove them to follow you and you alone for your glory because of what you've done. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.